Okay, well, welcome to this episode of Little Breakfast. And today I'm going to be chatting with Lindsay Brown. Lindsay, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Calling in from Wales. Calling in from sunny Wales. Is it sunny there? Yeah. Uh, it is today, beautiful blue anticyclonic day. <laughs> so we've had uh, we've had over a month of this now. It's been wonderful weather. Well, that's great. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Has the weather, isn't it? Uh, we're doing a weather report for the rest of the world, aren't we? Wales is sunny. Even Edinburgh, where I'm calling from, is sunny. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Just despite the circumstances, Lindsay. For those who don't know you, um, for the purposes of this podcast and little breakfast. Can you just tell us um, a wee bit of a synopsis, uh, just in terms of ministry? You were involved with IFES for quite a number of years, weren't you? Yes, well, I'm, I'm a native of Wales, as you've uh, heard, but I've been in, since I left university, I worked for a short while with a group called Operation Mobilization on a ship they had called the Logos, which travelled around many countries in Africa. And then after that year, I returned to Wales. And since that time, I've been working with students for 43 consecutive years. Um, uh, first in Wales, then coordinating evangelical student ministry in Europe and then globally. Um, and also during that time, I was seconded part-time to help organize a large conference hosted by the Lausanne Movement, a group started by Billy Graham and John Stott. Um, it was a large global conference for uh, 5,000 uh, Christian leaders from around the world, which took place in Cape Town 10 years ago. But the last 10 years or so, I returned to my full-time work with IFES. And in my current role, I lead a, a team of um, about 60 university evangelists and apologists who speak at university events weeks or missions in universities around the continent of Europe. So yeah. each year for the last few years, I think we've done about done these mission weeks or events weeks in just over 200 universities across the continent. So that's my main focus uh, this last decade. Yeah. So a lot of travel that's happened in your life by the sound of it. Yeah. This year looks as if it's going to be the first year since I was 20 20 years of age when I won't be traveling internationally. <laughs> well, so yeah, we find, nice our, find ourselves in my country. Yeah, absolutely. We find ourselves in di different circumstances, which we'll talk about a bit more in just a moment or two. Um, this, this podcast is called the little breakfast. And I had actually spoken about you coming up and speaking to the bigger brother, big breakfast, where we have a big breakfast and uh, have a talk and a Q and a, and, uh, so I'm grateful for you coming on to uh, The Little Breakfast. We are virtually talking about uh, topics and uh, food. Um, so I wondered, just because uh, I asked every guest who comes on here, as we think about breakfast, just for a little moment before we get into the meat of what we're really going to talk about, uh, is what, what do you normally have for breakfast? What does such as a fine man of yourself in Wales eat for breakfast? Well, if I was living on my own, I'd eat bacon and egg every day. But... Um... <laughs> Uh, being married to somebody who wants me, for some reason, to live as long as possible, uh, she's got me eating uh, uh, oats um, with uh, low-fat milk and uh, 
yogurt and grapes every morning for breakfast is pretty uh, and bananas pretty much the same every day as my wife is a is a is a former mcdonald from the west coast of scotland um she's really hot on scottish oats yeah well that's good, good for the cholesterol apparently yeah. uh, so what would be if you weren't subjected to such healthy food <laughs> what would you have as your ideal dream breakfast well as i mentioned it would be Bacon, egg, fried bread, um, black pudding, that kind of thing. Wow, fried bread. I haven't yeah. heard that one for a number of years. Yeah. Well, it comes from growing up in the coal mining towns in South Wales where those kind of things were were regularly eaten by members of my family who were coal miners. They needed a good hearty breakfast to start the day. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, it would be my breakfast of choice too, actually, in my... Uh, my grandfather was from Pontypris, so maybe that's where it's come from as oh, well. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's only 12 miles from where I was born. Yeah. Well, there you go. Small world, isn't it? Yeah. So as we think about the world, and you've been so involved in traveling uh, around the world, um, rather than just being in your fine country as you are just now, um, we're currently in a crisis, and I thought it'd be quite helpful. We're going to think about mission, but I want us to try and, think about that and shape that in terms of where we've been and where we are and where we might be going uh, under God. And just wondering in terms of your observations towards receptivity towards the gospel, particularly in the West, what's, what do you think that's been like even over the last sort of 10, 20 years, as we think back on the past 10, 20 years, where is, where's the West been in terms of receptivity to the gospel well i think the combination of secularism and um, materialism um, which really came out of the uh, a movement called uh, which historians call the enlightenment 250 years ago influenced by people like scottish philosopher uh, hume um, and put god to the periphery uh, of our worldview and man in the center. Uh, I think since that time it's held a, a kind of increasing stranglehold on the Western uh, mindset. That's become increasingly dominant, I think, in the last 40 years. And when you add pluralism as well, the notion that there are a plurality of roots to the truth or sources of the truth, no one way, and that the only truth is that there is no absolute truth. Um, those kind of worldviews have been dominant. I, I have to say, though, in the so so the 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 church, especially the evangelical church, has uh, probably slowly diminished in size and certainly in influence in the last uh, 30, 40 years. When I look at Christian unions and universities, for example, um, the time when I was a student in the mid to late seventies, um, the Christian union groups were certainly larger than they are now. The core of groups now is just as strong as it was then, I would say, but the numbers of people involved uh, are, uh, are are fewer because of the relentless impact um, of secularism and materialism on our culture. I'd have to say, however, though, that in the last few years, um, along with others, I'm seeing a slight shift in that there's not quite the hostility the level of hostility we might have had in the uh, 80s, 90s to the Christian message in universities. Um, and more students are showing 
uh, openness, at least to dialogue, uh, res respectfulness, uh, engagement. In part, I think it's because uh, this generation has grown up with it without any biblical background at all. So um, they're intrigued by the person of Jesus, particularly. There was an interesting um, survey done in Der, Der Stern, the, the German magazine, which is like Time magazine or Newsweek, a few years ago, about what European young people believe about religious faith. And uh, on the front cover, uh, as it introduced the, the results of the survey, it said, why are European young people disillusioned with the institution of the church, but fascinated by the person of Jesus Christ? And so the one thing, of course, you don't tell students is don't. So when a lecturer says, don't believe that Jesus is God, um, their reaction is, who are you to tell me that? I'm going to find out. <laughs> so that there does seem to be a little more interest, especially in our country. We're seeing many more students coming to uh, dialogue with Christian students about the person of Jesus and the Gospels. So there has been a slight uh, shift uh, in that respect in recent years. Do you think that it's interesting, your observation about there being a slight change, because I wonder whether, you know, at the heart of being human is that we, we want to be loved, we want to be seen, we want to be known. And with all the the philosophies that came through postmodernism, uh, through an increase of focus on individualism, uh, through an education system that's largely said, well, just be what you want to be, do what you want to do, you know, reach for the stars. There, there, be, there comes an emptiness, doesn't there, when people feel that they, they haven't been able to obtain such things. And, and also, that isn't the answer to life, is it? It isn't the answer to life that you're just going to be successful, that you're just going to become an island, an individualistic. A being that we are made for relationship, we are made much, for much more, aren't we? Yeah, it's interesting. My wife taught in the top independent girls' school uh, in Wales uh, until recently, and um, they have some media figure usually to speak there uh, at their annual uh, uh, school prizes day um, each year, and it's usually somebody who is a celebrity type. And in one of the last ones my wife went to, she overheard, uh, she said to one of the girls, are you looking forward to the speech day today? And she said, not really. I suppose we'll get somebody from the media who will come and tell us uh, how successful they've been and we can have it all. Whereas these days we know we can't. So it's a little bit of cynicism when people, and then the majority of people realize that that uh, uh, isn't possible. It's interesting in speaking to university students, I think we've got to engage, as we always have tried to, in answering their objective questions like, can you trust the New Testament documents? What's the evidence for the existence of Jesus? Um, in which way is Jesus unique in a world of many religions? But I think we're also finding we've got to, to come back to your question, try to answer some of the more existential questions that students, young people are increasingly uh, asking about, for example, from where do I get my source of security in my identity? Mm. Uh, what does it mean like and how can I find uh, a love that is lasting? 
uh, not uh, ephemeral? Mm. Um, where can I find hope and purpose and meaning in life? And we're finding increasingly uh, in the last few years, there's been somewhat of a shift. I think historically, the church always has to demonstrate that the gospel is objectively true and trustworthy, that there's evidence for its believability, but also that it's subjectively satisfying. The weakness of apologetics sometimes is it only focuses on the first. What I would argue that we need today is what I would call relational apologetics, giving reasons for the hope that is within us, reasons for Christian belief, but showing that not only is it historically and objectively uh, testable and trustworthy, but that it's subjectively satisfying in answering these deep questions that and longings that people have. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think that's a really important point because I think that sometimes as Christians, we can be a bit reductionary in what it means to be hum, human, you know, that we we're not sort of machines just imparting information, are we? We we need to be people that are interested in art and music and sport and enjoy the fullness of God's creation. And I think sometimes we can be can be guilty of well, it can swing both ways. We can either be guilty of not participating in that or making idols of that and not actually ever proclaiming the good news. It seems to be a bit of a swingometer, I think. I think that's an important point, actually, uh, Clive. Uh, I think it's very important in our Bible teaching in churches to demonstrate how biblical truth applies to every sphere of life. Uh, Don't get me wrong here. I think it's very important for us to preach the good news about Jesus' death, deity, Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. But the biblical worldview goes beyond that in expressing the lordship of this Christ over every sphere of life, um, including the realm of ideas uh, and including the whole of society. And there are various verses in the New Testament, for example, that testify to this, where Paul says to Timothy that God is the giver of all, every good and perfect gift richly and freely to be enjoyed. Uh, There's very little preaching on that, which... Uh, that kind of passage which highlights that God is our Father, and just as any human father gives gifts to his children to enjoy, so our Heavenly Father, who's interested in our in our salvation, is also interested in our current well-being, so gives us a whole panoply of gifts to enjoy because he's a loving Heavenly Father. Paramount amongst, amongst that, perhaps, is the beauty of the created order around us, but it would include things like music, uh, sport, uh, the visual arts, uh, and so on, relationships, uh, and so on, which we do not, should not feel guilty in enjoying, but treasure them as gifts from a Heavenly Father. The sad thing is that people, of course, enjoy those things and don't see that they're gifts from God's good hand. Mm. It's it's difficult to hold that intention, the question of... um, In the New Testament, Paul, for example, often exhorts us to live sacrificial lives for the cause of the gospel. But as I mentioned, there's also this dimension of enjoying all of God's good gifts. How do you hold the two in creative tension? 
The best answer I ever heard was from Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary who served in Donavur in India. She said, I thank God for all these good gifts, my home culture, my family, music, literature, food, and so much else. But she said, I hold them in a palm of an open hand. So if for the greater cause of the advance of the gospel, God asks me to give some of these things up temp- temporarily, my hand is open so they don't have to be prized out of my hand. Mm. And for many of us, our hand is closed. We want to enjoy these gifts uh, without reference to the giver on the one hand. On the other hand, there are some of us who perhaps in reacting against the excesses of the world uh, haven't learned to treasure these gifts given to us by God. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks for that. In terms of mission beyond the Western world, are there any things that you could just share that would be helpful regarding maybe the past 10 or 20 years? I'm aware that being a pastor in a local congregation, having been somebody who has traveled around the world a bit as well, not as much as you, hasten to add, is that there is a sense in which you cannot really know about what God is doing globally uh, and and maybe become too parochial. Is there any things that you can share that have been markers over the past 10 or 20 years globally? Uh, well, it may surprise many people uh, to hear that the only continent where the church uh, isn't really gro- hasn't really been growing significantly in the last 20 years is Europe. <laughs> it's growing everywhere else, mm. particularly Africa, Latin America, Asia, and even in the Middle East. Um, it's very interesting. You're speaking from Edinburgh. In 1910, there was a historic missionary conference there when Christian leaders from around the world gathered together for one of the first global missions conferences to look at how the gospel could be taken to the ends of the earth. 95% of the participants were from Western Europe and North America, only 5% from the rest of the world. That was 1910. In 2010, the conference I was helping to organize in Cape Town that I referred to, there was a similar conference. It was the most representative of the global church in history, apparently, Mm. with participants from 198 countries I was able to be there. Uh, it was a privilege to yeah. be there. Well, 65% yeah. of the people there were non-Western. Only 35% were Western. That's European, yeah. Australian, North American. And that shows the shift in the growth of the global evangelical or Bible-orientated, biblically-rooted church mm. uh, in a 100-year period. Um, and if you were to look at, say, the five largest Evangelical churches in the world, the evangelical church has grown from about 6 million to over 300 million in that 100 years. The five countries with the largest groups of evangelical Christians would be uh, the U.S., where the number is diminishing, uh, China, where the number is increasing rapidly, Nigeria, uh, Brazil, and India. None of them would be European and in each of those countries, there's a minimum of 30 million evangelicals. That would be India. Uh, it's probably 100 million in China, even by the government statistics in China itself. Alongside that is the growing missionary force in the non-Western world, with now 65% of all missionaries uh, in the world coming from the non-Western world, especially from places like uh, Brazil, uh, the Philippines, 
uh, Korea. And the big shock is when you hear that per, per uh, head of population, the largest number of missionaries from any one country in the world is Mon- Mongolia. Wow. Where there were only six known Christians in 1990. These days there are well over 200 churches, thousands of believers sending people out. And just recently I had a a call like this with 90 senior leaders in the church in China. And they were saying their vision is to send out 20,000 Chinese missionaries by the year 2030. Because they believe they've received 20,000 missionaries in China over the last 200 years. So they want to pay back and make their contribution to the global church. So there's a big shift going on. And there are other countries where the church has grown rapidly the last 20 years. Nepal would be an example. Um, Eritrea in Ethiopia would be a second one. Albania in Europe. Um, So there are illustrations of this happening all all around the world in different countries. That's very helpful because... I think that for the majority of us here in the UK, it can be easy to think that, um, as is the media tells us, that the church is diminishing uh, and really forget that globally it is growing. So it's it's important to have that global perspective, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the situation in, in the UK itself is, um, is more nuanced than many people uh, would credit. For example, you you may see statistics about the catastrophic decline in the number of people attending churches on Sunday in the UK. It's now under 4%, I think. What that uh, colors is the fact that the biggest decline is especially in churches which have a liberal orientation in terms of uh, a liberal view of their reading of the scriptures, the centrality of Jesus, God's supernatural power, God's guidelines for life, as they may see as being too restrictive. Um, Those churches are experiencing catastrophic uh, decline because they're they're often assimilating with the culture rather than trying to be prophetic and speaking to it. When it comes to the evangelical churches, when when I say evangelical, I mean those whose aspiration is to live under the authority of Scripture, and believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that his death on the cross was effective for leading forgiveness of sins, and his bodily resurrection offers hope um, in in the midst of uh, loss and uh, death. Um, Those churches are are either, some of them slowly declining, or there are some eruptions of growth in different parts of the UK. You will have seen some of them in Scotland, where you have some of these churches with, they typically have the largest congregations in the country. And the one area where it's growing fastest in Britain, where there isn't decline, is London, where there's a growth of about 10% per annum in the number of people attending churches, particularly evangelical churches, over the last decade. And one of the key factors there, and this is a missiological shift also, is that it's, it is spurred on both by good Bible teaching in these churches and an attempt to engage with uh, people in society, but also, perhaps even more strikingly, the contribution of that group of people which might be called the diaspora. That is, believers who have come to settle here 
and brought their Christian faith with them and exhibit a kind of vibrance uh, in their worship, especially folks from Afro-Caribbean, Filipino and other uh, backgrounds. They are contributing enormously to the growth of the church in the UK and in France, I would say, Mm. where the evangelical church has grown from over 200,000 in the early 80s to more than half a million these days, in part spurred on by the contribution of the diaspora. So it is a more nuanced situation. There is decline, and yet there's a leveling off and even um, an increase in uh, some Christian communities because of these influences. Very helpful. And I I think that that maybe leads me to my next thinking and question about the current situation that we're in. Uh, I wonder whether from what some of what you've described uh, in what you said as being nuanced, that that there might also be a refining of the church. I would imagine a hundred years ago in the UK that people would have gone to church as a cultural thing to do, what we might call nominal. Um, And obviously there's been a big uh, change in rhythm with COVID-19 happening and us being in lockdown at at present as we talk about this. How do you think this current crisis is changing how we we might engage in mission? Have Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, in some ways, first of all, it's too early to tell what the long-term repercussions uh, will be. Uh, I wonder if the longer the impact of um, COVID-19 goes on, uh, if it has a deeper impact um, on people in our culture in terms of reflecting on the foundations for life, um, the Bible's answer to the the problem of death, um, um, and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. At the moment, I think there's um, a lot of fear around. There is some questioning. The anecdotal evidence, insofar as we have it, is that that there seems to be some uh, increased interest in at least exploring or trying to understand if the Christian churches have something to say to people in the current situation. Even last week, I read a statistic in one of the newspapers that said before the virus, 4% of British people were attending church on Sunday. In some areas of the country now, uh, up to 25% of people are listening to online sermons on Sunday, either on Sunday morning or in the days following. That sounds a little bit high to me, but Mm. certainly in a number of the churches I'm in connection with, Uh, Even the one here in Monmouth, which has uh, maybe a 100 people typically on Sunday before the virus, um, there would be upwards of a 1,000 people uh, in the the weeks following who are monitoring or listening to the uh, online online Sunday morning uh, service. Um, I don't know if the restlessness and the interest has yet turned to much deep searching Mm-hmm. but it may well do in due course. Um, I think we have to wait and see on that. And there's a lot of work f- for the churches to do in terms of building on that. Some churches have tried to develop online discussion groups around uh, looking at one of the contemporary accounts of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke or John. 
And in, in the church here in Monmouth, quite a number of people have joined that group on Sunday night, for example. Mm. It's interesting, many of them are between 20 and 35 years of age. And um, uh, that's unusual because that's, that's the kind of group, well, 25 to 40, uh, which have been most resistant, perhaps, um, to the gospel in recent years as they settled into a materialistic uh, lifestyle. So I think before coronavirus, there were some bright spots, some good churches, some good ministries, a lot, uh, a lot of great work in the universities in the UK, good work amongst sportsmen and sportswomen, the impact of the diaspora, um, evangelistic initiatives like Alpha, um, Christianity Explored, and so on. Uh, lots of positive things. I'm not sure we are quite yet seeing the turnaround. We mm. should pray and hope for that. That it depends on how we respond. But I would say one example from a Welsh context I've observed is somebody has just done a survey over the last 10 years of the church throughout Wales. It's a remarkable piece of research, which he did off his own bat. A former pastor who stepped down so he could travel around the country and do some research. And uh, he died of cancer last year, but his work was published. And in it, he says, um, it's quite clear that the churches that are growing in our cultural context are those who both have a clear message which is faithful to the traditional message of the gospel, centered on the person of Jesus, and at the same time, are engaged in their local community. It's pretty consistent. Some evangelical churches are very strong in their preaching on Sunday, but can have a tendency to be distant from the culture around. And it's interesting talking with leaders last week about the impact of the coronavirus here. Those who are involved in both online services and providing food boxes uh, advice on debt management, um, uh, uh, visiting people in dis distress, even though they have to talk through letterboxes and so on, phoning people up. Those are the churches that seem to be having an impact and will reap the benefits uh, in due course. So I think this is a lesson for many evangelical churches to learn who have focused on overmuch on the church service and the Bible teaching alone, and not engaging with the culture. Um, and on the other hand, for those who've engaged with the culture, but not been teaching the Bible clearly and faithfully, that it seems that a combination of those two things is what is most dynamic in terms of providing growth over a period of time. And I would expect that to continue afterwards, because historically, uh, there are examples from history of how this has worked. This combination of a clear message proclaimed by the church and lived out in community. John Stott, the great Anglican leader, had a wonderful quotation in this respect. He said, the challenge of the church is to be morally distinct without being socially segregated. And sometimes we've confused the two. We've cut ourselves off from the culture around us. And our model is the incarnation of Jesus who came and dwelt amongst, dwelt or lived amongst us, uh, but was called the friend of sinners. 
And the question he said for most believers is, do we have any so-called sinners for friends at all? And so I think the challenge for us is both proclaim the gospel clearly and live it out in the community in reaching out to people and caring for them. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. When I work with university students in a similar way to what you've just said, and what you've said is, has really been helpful again, um, I used to talk about how we mustn't be like spiritual Amazon delivery guys. <laughs> and I think there is a, an eagerness and an urgency amongst those who maybe have a gift of evangelism to get the message out there and to deliver the, deliver the message and then do a runner at the door, you know, get back into the van. And uh, I think it's got to be, the truth has to be embodied, doesn't it, as you're saying. And it might not be, I think, you know, in a local community such as ours, we are endeavouring to do what you've just suggested and, and uh, praying that the Lord will bring fruit from that but it's recognizing i think that we don't all have the same gifts isn't it and i think sometimes um evangelists pastors maybe are not as good at getting involved in certain aspects of the community but it's about it's about you know enabling other people to use those gifts and us working together as a body but it's seeing the priority of that and in a student context that i mentioned before it is about taking time to have coffee with people showing an interest where people are stressed. It's about being human as God has created us to, to be, isn't it? Rather than just being a, an Amazon delivery person. Yeah. 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 We're just not, we're not just uh, uh, public speakers. No. The gospel has to be proclaimed and lived out. It's very interesting. There was a German um, historian called Adolf Harnack who was an expert in the life of the early church, the primitive church in the first 300 years, that period before, between the end of the New Testament and Constantine, when the church was legitimatized in the Roman Empire. And um, he was once asked, how did the church grow from being a despised minority in the New Testament to being more widely accepted 300 years later? And he said they did two things. And he wasn't from a, an evangelical, uh, wasn't of an evangelical persuasion. But he said the two reasons the church grew was, one, they out-argued the pagans. In other words, they provided answers to the big questions of life, both satisfying the objective and the subjective questions, which mm. we touched on earlier. And they outlived the pagans in terms of, Attract, providing attractive communities, uh, caring for people, especially the sick and the suffering. And there's a brilliant book written about this. I think it's a seminal book in the last um, 15 years by an American sociologist called Rodney Stark. Um, he's still professor of sociology in Washington State University. And it's called The Rise of Christianity, in which he looks at the question of uh, he wasn't a Christian when he started to research it, by the way. How did this small uh, despised group become accepted within 300 years? And he, as a result of his research, came to the conclusion it grew for three reasons. The message they proclaimed. Secondly, their treatment of women. And thirdly, they reached out to people during two periods of plague, around about 150 AD and 250 AD. 
um, when as much as a third of the inhabitants of cities in the main cities in the Roman Empire were wiped out by plagues, including the first bout of measles and so on. Many believers reached out to those who were sick and suffering. Some lost their lives as a consequence. But a lot of people came into the life of the church as they saw them both caring for them and laying down their lives for them. It's been intriguing in the last few weeks to see how people have honoured the National Health Service and others who have laid their lives on the line. In a similar way, people need to see us in the church reaching out in any ways we can um, to care for people today, because I think that would have repercussions longer term. That's certainly the lesson from the early church, uh, I would say. Mm. A combination of a clear message, plus reaching out particularly to people in their vulnerability um, and their weakness. Yeah, that's good. Uh, regarding, I've got a question regarding... Uh, where we might be going and also this is the last section that we're going to be thinking about about revival and in scotland and in wales there's been a number of revivals over the years and personally over the past year i've had a real ache and my prayer has been that the lord would bring revival in a way that I've never had before in my life. And I know a number of other church leaders who are saying the same thing, that, that in their own prayer life, there's a longing for God to revive this nation. Uh, I did a bit of research, came across one of your talks where you spoke about how we cannot orchestrate revival. And being a man from Wales, you know about revival. What, what is revival? And what might we see if we see revival? Well, revival, of course, as you may know, Wales has been called the land of revivals. Uh, we have a conference on revival every year since I was born over 60 years ago. <laughs> and um, uh, we had four revivals in the 1800s. Our last one was 1904-5. Um, we haven't had a significant revival since uh, that time, but it's been the longing of many of our senior church leaders. Martin Lloyd Jones, the great Welsh preacher, often preached on it, longed to see it happen in his own life. He saw significant church growth in two churches he was in in uh, uh, in the steelworks town of Port Talbot and uh, also in Westminster Chapel in London. But he never saw widespread revival in Wales, the UK, or the Western world more broadly during his life, even though it was his longing. Revival, by definition, in, in, uh, in, in order to answer your question, is a sovereign act of a supernatural God. And that's why I would say we can't orchestrate it. It's God's, uh, only God can intervene uh, supernaturally to bring it about. Um, God is a spirit and his Holy Spirit um, as it were, comes like a rushing wind, just like he did in the early life, early times of the church, to bring about powerful transformation. It usually leads to a combination of large numbers of people being converted and huge transformative moral change within the culture. In the last one in Wales in 1904-05, these two elements were there. In one year, 
in a population of two, just over 2 million people in Wales at the time. 100,000 people uh, became believers. And at the same time, um, many people who had stolen things started to, turning up and uh, giving them back. Uh, the crime rate dropped dramatically uh, in that year. There were huge numbers of reconciliations. So the culture, it wasn't just a change at a micro level, mm. individuals being transformed, but at a macro level within the culture, the whole culture was transformed in terms of corruption being reduced, honesty increased in public life, and so on. So it was a pretty dramatic impact. And most other revivals before, as Lloyd-Jones used to argue, had at their heart the rediscovery of the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith. It's then pretty much all the world revivals before. Interestingly, the 1904-05 didn't. Some historians would argue it was the birth of the modern Pentecost, day point Pentecostal movement. Um, its weakness, unfortunately, was that there wasn't very strong teaching alongside this dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit. And in order for the, the marks or the impact of the revival to continue long term, you've got to have a com that, that combination of word and spirit, the Holy Spirit breaking in, transforming people's lives. But then as the word of God is taught well and carefully, the impact of the revival is deepened. And perhaps the best illustration in terms of long-term impact of that in Europe is the Reformation in the 1500s, through which many, many people were converted all across Europe. But this is a neglected dimension. Um, a consequence of the Reformation was the transformation of the European culture, with some historians would argue the birth of the scientific movement, the birth of banking, some people argue, <laughs> relates to Calvin's teachings, and uh, uh, the birth of church music in many ways, uh, and so much else. In fact, I'm so struck by that. I've just finished a book to be published by Christian Focus in Scotland on the whole question of the missionary vision of Luther and Calvin, because I think it has lessons for us uh, today. So you saw those two impacts, the impact individually and culturally. If we ask the question, is revival happening yet in our country? And should we pray for it? We should definitely pray for it. It's wonderful to hear of the pastors you refer to and yourself. And I notice many friends praying more for it. That shouldn't allow us to drop our guard in terms of the importance of ongoing Christian testimony at the same time, the hard slog of persevering. It's not a means of excusing ourselves from everyday Christian witness and living. But while we're engaged in ongoing evangelism and living out the Christian life, praying for the Holy Spirit to breathe on our nation and our people to bring about transformation, I would say three of the factors that have created or contributed to the cause of revival in the past have been um, significant increase, it seems, in the prayers of God's people just beforehand. I think you see that in the Western Islands in Scotland mm. uh, and uh, in Wales. Secondary evidence of significant repentance, people recognizing their own sin and the sin of the nations. And maybe coronavirus highlights how the fact we should 
apologise for what we've done to the created order. And then thirdly, revival often occurs as the gospel is proclaimed and as we engage with the community, which I referred to earlier. These fact, three factors seem to have been common in other revivals in the past, and we should look for them um, in the midst of any revival that occurs in due course and pray for it to occur. But if God doesn't see fit to supernaturally intervene to bring about a widespread spread revival, we should at least pray for local transformations like that, and we should continue on in serving the Lord as best we can anyway in uh, through the rest of our lives because the gospel is true and wonderful. I, th- I think the the mention of the work of the Holy Spirit is key, isn't it? Because I think there's a great correlation there with prayer, that if we cannot orchestrate it, then we can pray and ask for him to be at work. And when we, certainly what I've heard and read about the Lewis revivals, it's, in, it's interesting to hear about how there was a sort of a cloud of, holiness or a sense that that came upon communities by which they were aware of the holiness of God and their own sin and the need to get right with God. And when you take that on a micro level for us as individuals, I think that's what happens, isn't it? That we become aware of our own sin and that grates us and that we need to get right with God it isn't just an information exchange and there has to be a work of the spirit there. And I think that's what we have to, you're absolutely right. We have to be praying towards that. Well, our, our, our message is not just one of transferring information. It's supposed to be transformational. The gospel is not just informative, it's transformative. And on the, that issue of the Holy Spirit at work, Augustine, the early church leader had a great saying, I think he said, when speaking about uh, the growth of the church, without God, we cannot. Mm. But without us, he will not. Mm. And I think that's the biblical balance, is that we trust in God's sovereignty. That doesn't require us, therefore, to be passive. We are to work and serve and reach out as best we can with God's help. Uh, but He only he can bring people alive. So there's this there's this finely tuned balance in Scripture between the dramatic, empowering impact of the Holy Spirit, but the fact that he chooses to work through frail and fallen and broken human beings like ourselves. <coughs> and we need to be open to be used. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's been really helpful to chat through these various things and we will continue to pray for revival as um, the good people of your land have as well <laughs> and uh, ask that God will, uh, in this time, I think, of reflection, of this change of rhythm, that he will, he will use that. And I think strengthen and, and embolden us as, as Christians to be willing to, to speak up and share the, you know, the love that we have and the hope that we have for others. So that's been really, really good to chat with you, uh, Lindsay. It's been so good. Um, and, you know, praise God that through technology we've been able to do that. We were trying to get you up to do that. And, and uh, God willing, we'll be able to do that one day too. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to chat with us. Thanks, Clive. Great to be with you. Thanks again. 
Thank you.